Welcome to Trust Tree Talks, a podcast that supports our vision to connect with a kick-ass tribe of women who are doing what it takes to make their lives shine. We're your hosts, Elizabeth Holmes and Lisa Shower. Thanks for tuning in. We're glad you're here. Please note this podcast reflects how we speak in our actual lives and the language can sometimes get salty, especially me. You've been advised. We're back with Trust Tree Talks. We hope you've caught our other episodes this season where we've been talking about how Trust Tree got started and interviewing some of the women who have contributed to our forthcoming anthology, Omitted from My Obituary. Today's guest is one of our favorite ladies, filmmaker Beth Harrington. We're coming to you from Vancouver, Washington, and we're excited to have a chat with Beth. Today, our guest is Beth Harrington, Vancouver's own Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker, Culture Arts and Heritage Commission member, recipient of Clark County Arts Commission's Lifetime Achievement Award, and all-around fun person to talk to. (laughs) Welcome, Beth. Thank you. You forgot bon vivant. (laughs) (laughs) We're so glad to have you here. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. This is great. So, Beth. Tell us a little bit about what brought you to Clark County, a little bit about your career journey to get here. Well, my arriving here wasn't as much as I love it here. It wasn't about being here. It was about being with a special person whom I met making a film a long time ago, a, at the time, young volcanologist from the U.S. Geological Survey here in the Cascades Volcano Observatory in Vancouver. And uh, I had been making a film for the PBS series Nova about a volcanic eruption that happened in the Philippines in 1991. And this young scientist was part of the team that saved the day, Uh, saved a bunch of people's lives, made the right scientific call. Um, We made a really cool Emmy nominated film about them. And in the bargain, I also fell in love with this guy. And um, his name is Andy Lockhart. And I ended up after many years of trying to figure out, is he into me? I don't think he's into me. Probably not into me. It doesn't matter. He lives 3,000 miles away. I finally figured it out with his help and moved here to Vancouver, <laughs> Washington. I love that you have your own Indy Andy Jones. <laughs> he is Indy Andy Jones. He is. He used to, he, he used to have the hat. Oh. I'm so glad. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So that's how I wound up here. And honestly, I'd I'd come from Boston, Massachusetts. I love my hometown. It was a big deal to leave. But I knew it was something that I had to do. I wonder for the rest of my life, huh, should I have gone off with that guy and lived in the Pacific Northwest and would never have known. It was a real stretch for me. And um, for a long time, I felt like a really big, weird East Coast personality in a very mellow place. (laughs) I think I've mellowed some and the temperature has risen here too. So I think we've met each other, the Pacific Northwest and I, but it it took a while. Also, what was great is that I was able to, as a filmmaker, I lived in, you know, um, the ecosystem of WGBH, which was a big public television flagship station in Boston and was able to arrive here and I almost immediately get slotted into working with Oregon Public Broadcasting. And that was a huge gift because it's one thing to come for somebody and integrate myself into that person's life, but eh, you should have other things to do. It shouldn't just be all on that person. So to be able to come here and immediately start working at 
OPB was great. And I got to do a lot of the kinds of things I'd already been doing as a filmmaker in the East Coast right, right away here. So that worked out great. So tell us a little bit about your filmmaking journey. Did you grow up thinking, I want to make films? No, I, I mean, it's a funny thing because it's hard to remember now, and most people would have no context for it. But when I came up in media, and I was kind of in a media household, my father was in advertising, both of my parents went to art school, so it was a lot of creative buzz in the house. Creativity was encouraged. I knew I was going to do something creative, and I thought it was going to be writing. Because, you know, when I was in high school, they were in the idea of an independent filmmaker, or even you know, making films for television or, you know, forget about streaming platforms. You know, there just wasn't a, a place to be. Where I was thinking I was sl- going to slot myself in was being on the radio. I was really into rock and roll, still am, and really wanted to be a DJ. And so I started kind of positioning myself for college to go to uh, some kind of communications program in college and be a DJ and play rock and roll records for the rest of my life. That didn't end up being the thing I did. But while I was there, I started thinking about storytelling and different kinds of media that would accommodate storytelling. And I really think, as much as I like narrative film and I'm a big fan and have dabbled in it myself, that documentaries, you know, it's the truth is stranger than fiction thing. You can never really make stuff up that's cooler than what really happens in life. And so I got very interested in in being a documentary filmmaker, but it came after college. You know, it took a long time to think, oh, you could actually do that. And hmm, the place for that would be, frankly, this newly burgeoning public television system, which wasn't really that healthy even when I was in high school and college. It seems like it's been here forever, but it hasn't. And the idea that there would be a career as an independent filmmaker, now you can see documentary filmmakers everywhere, and some of them are even brand names like Ken Burns and Michael Moore. But in those days, there was no such thing. It took me a while to figure it out. But shortly, about three years after college, I was like, oh, you know, maybe I'll do that. And then I got a little waylaid by an opportunity to be in a rock and roll band. Which you shared in our anthology. You told us a little bit about that, and I don't want to give too much away because we want people to pick up the book. (laughs) But in your time in the rock and roll band, can you tell us a little bit, just a little peek? A little peek? uh How that opportunity arose and and what band it was, because I think that's a little teaser for people. Okay, yeah. (laughs) I say it with some hesitation because the band I was in, I, I call it a binary experience, which is you either have never heard of the band and go, eh, or you know the band and it's like this weird culty gasp. And there's nothing in between. You know, I can go for years and, and again, my husband thinks this is a very amusing thing to watch where, and it just happened recently again, where we'll be talking and it'll somehow come up and what's the band? Oh my God. You were the, mod, the name of the band is The Modern Lovers. And the lead singer is a guy named Jonathan Richmond, who most people, if they know him at all, know him as the guy in the tree at the beginning of Something About Mary, who's singing the song Something About Mary. It's a weird claim <laughs> to fame. Fun fact. <laughs> Fun fact. He's actually, many people think of him as the godfather, or one of the godfathers of punk music, because he validated only playing two chords in a song and not singing very well. 
<laughs> he's gotten much, much better over the years, and it's hard to imagine that that was his start. But, but he also, because of that aesthetic, he chose me to be in his band. <laughs> and I only play two chords and don't sing very well either. So it was a perfect match. But he picked me because I happened to be around when they had fired another singer. <laughs> and we talked a little bit about this. So you were that you worked with him for three years. Yeah. Tell us a little bit. You said there's some lessons you learned about work ethic or yeah, an artistry. Yeah. Um, so the cool thing, uh, Jonathan, uh, for people who don't know him, is this very quirky character. And he's not quirky in your typical sex and drugs and rock and roll way. In fact, he used to make earlier versions of the band do calisthenics before the show. He wouldn't let anybody drink. He was, you know, it was just like the complete opposite of what you think about most rock and roll bands. And he's just very um, specific about what he wants to do until he changes his mind. So it's a very capricious, weird process to be around and watch. But he's also really, really true to himself. And once I got over being annoyed at the sort of vagaries of his choices, I realized that he was on a track and he knew what the track was. I couldn't see it from where I was sitting, but he knew. And he has never faltered from that. And he's blown up record deals and pissed off a lot of people and made people scratch their heads, but he's always remained true to himself. And on stage, that communicates as complete authenticity. Oh my God, I'm going to cry. <laughs> to stand next to him and watch him do that night after night was an incredible gift. It was like, wow, I'm, I have the best seat in the house seeing this guy do this really cool thing. And it's, it's not just showmanship, although there was a lot of that in it. It was really just him going, I'm going with this thing that's happening to me now. And it was just staggering. And that's what people love about him. That's yeah. what they're tapping into when they say they like him. It took me a long time to really appreciate it and then to figure out, oh, that's really what human beings should be doing for themselves. They should be doing that thing. It's not easy to even be able to catch something like that and see it night after night, um, much less emulate it. Mm -hmm. You can't emulate what he's doing. You have to find your own thing. But it was really a cool lesson. And the older I get, the more I appreciate that. And we're still friends. I still talk to him periodically. And the other cool part about it is because he's so true to himself, he's managed to sustain a career that started when he was 17 years old. And uh, that's 50 years now. And he travels all over the world and still does the same quirky thing. And people love it. Is there a musician that just rocked your world that you want to make sure everyone knows about and can run out and try to listen to their stuff immediately. One of the musicians that she's been getting her due more in the last decade or so, but even a lot of musicians that I think are fairly knowledgeable didn't really focus on her or know much about her. And that's a musician named Rosetta Tharp, who is, uh, well, was a gospel singer and electric guitarist in the 1930s and 40s, who people like Chuck Berry and Johnny Cash point to as people they were listening to as they were trying to figure out what they were doing. Now, that's pretty powerful, for coming, especially coming from Chuck Berry. When you look at Chuck Berry and you look at old clips of Sister Rosetta Tharp, as the, her was her stage name, you can see 
Rosetta Tharp and what Chuck Berry's doing. And, you know, I all, grew up thinking Chuck Berry was the originator. I mean, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Elvis, okay, that, there you go. But it turns out in the 30s and 40s, there's a proto rock and roller who's a lady in a, one of those big flowy 1930s cloth coats and pumps <laughs> and, you know, a hairdo and a beautiful white electric guitar that she's playing like nobody's business and she's singing about God and eventually she got tired of singing about God and she just decided to sing about you and not for nothing but the other interesting thing is that she, you was a woman she was also queer so she's an african-american gospel singer who was queer and played rock and roll before anybody else and <laughs> yeah. i think that's just like Okay, there she goes. There's our icon. Yeah, I'll hail the queen there. Yeah, and and there's some great clips floating around on YouTube of her playing. The BBC, I think, filmed her in probably the late 40s, early 50s, and she's there in, on a railroad platform in her cloth coat playing to people on the other side of the railroad tracks. It's the craziest piece of footage, and, and she's she's brilliant. You can see the beginnings of rock and roll in her in a way that like, how did, that, how did that happen? So after your time in the rock band, you were making films, mm -hmm. and your films have a lot of music in it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Funny about that, isn't yes. it? <laughs> Just trying to connect the dots. No, it's, it's, they're good dots to connect. I mean, it's funny because I think one of the big things in my own search for authenticity was trying to integrate the real passions that I had, which were storytelling and, and music. And um, I, I didn't often know how to do that. And again, there wasn't a lot of precedent. Like there weren't tons of music documentaries floating around in the world. There were a handful, you know, Martin Scorsese had done The Last Waltz and uh, there was a great gospel film called Say Amen Somebody. I mean, I could tell you on one hand what, were what things were floating around, but I thought that's cool. I want to do that. But even then I recognized that that was an expensive proposition, music rights, you know, being in a world and just chasing a story that's kind of open-ended was always a little bit, it's, it's still a big challenge in filmmaking. But I did feel like that was where I wanted to go. So, you know, it was, was largely tucked in the back of my mind for a long time while I refined and learned, you know, as an associate producer for a really long time and used organizational skills to move up the food chain and the public television world. Um, and then I started making my own films. And, and, you know, the other love of mine besides music is history and cultural stuff. So a lot of the things I was making were in that vein. The Nova thing was the science part wasn't really my jam, but I felt that worked out in a different way. But, you know, it really is like about, you know, culture and art. So, yeah, being able to finally make my first music documentary, which turned out to be something that really didn't happen until I got here was a huge thing. And I was able to get a big grant to make my first music documentary about rockabilly singers, women rockabilly singers, so peers of Elvis Presley's. It was called Welcome to the Club. And that was really an amazing, fun ride. And, and I was like, oh yeah, more of that. I want to do more of that. And I also just love being around musicians and working with musicians. So it's also transpired that over the years I've found other ways to do it. And I'm working on a short thing now for Oregon Public Broadcasting about a band called Federale that does spaghetti Western music. I just love hanging out with them and pretending I'm Sergio Leone for a day and, you know, 
I really feel lucky now and and I feel like I accomplished that thing where I was able to integrate my loves into one place. And at this point, I can't see not doing that. I just have to be more clever about how I find the money to do it. <laughs> that is always the uh, burden, mm-hmm. <laughs> the financial yep. side of things. Isn't it? <laughs> so tell us about, you have one of your films is uh, on Netflix and uh, a pretty incredible project that has won quite a bit of accolades. So do you want to share a little bit about The Winding Stream? Sure. Yeah, thanks. After I made my Rockabilly film, I realized that all those women in that film were very much influenced by the original Carter family. And they're kind of the foundational family at the heart of country music. And most people, even if they don't think they know who the Carters are, they do. You know, Will the Circle Be Unbroken is a Carter family song. Keep on the Sunny Side is a Carter family song. And their body of work lasted for many, many years and is still in print today after all these years. And they go back to the 1920s. And what's more, their family still performs the music. And notably, one of their family members, the second generation from the original Carters, was June Carter Cash, and she married Johnny Cash. Roseanne Cash had narrated my film, Welcome to the Club. And so I had met her and worked with her briefly at one point and caught her at a really great time. She was very willing to do it. It worked out great. So when I got the idea that I wanted to do this next project, she was on board very quickly. In fact, she actually turned to me at one point and said, you know what you should do? You should do a film about the Carter family. I was like, funny, you should mention it. I was thinking the same thing. That was really helpful. She opened doors and the most, the biggest door she opened was the door to meeting her dad. And so I was able to interview Johnny Cash about less than a month before he died. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was really under the wire. And she said, you need to come right away. You need to come to Nashville and you need to interview my dad. And I was like, okay, when would that work out? She says, how about two weeks? I'm like, we're there. You know, I didn't know where I was going to get the money. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I, it's Johnny Cash. So we did do that. And that started off what I thought was going to be the easiest project I've ever done. <laughs> and it was not. It took me 10 years to finish the film. And it was a big epic film and it needed a few years, but it didn't probably need to take 10. But again, money, life, but mostly money. (laughs) But I got the film done. And the great payoff was that for all of the struggle, people really loved it. It was my most critically successful film. Got great reviews in, you know, the New York Times and the Village Voice and all the papers across the country. And then Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone, Rolling Stone, it premiered itself. Myself. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Rolling Stone. <laughs> that little magazine. Oh, that day. Oh, yeah. that day. I was at an airport when I saw it, and I was like, I called my husband, but it's in Rolling Stone. <laughs> it was great. That was an incredible validation after all that time, because for a while I was just thinking, oh, yeah, I, I guess nobody thinks this is a good idea. That must be the problem. Um, and it wasn't the problem. It was just economics. But it ended up that it did really well. It was in festivals. And then uh, Netflix picked it up for a while. And then it's also on, you know, all the other platforms, Amazon, and iTunes, and Voodoo, and all that. So it was great. I got to do a little victory lap with it, got to go to theaters around the country and show it. And we always had a live music component with it. So there were all these musicians playing Carter music. And it was like a one-year, like hang 
where I just like took it all in and went, wow, that happened. Some of these things you finish and that drops and that's the end of it. But this was a, a very satisfying thing. I don't want to go take another 10 years to make a film, but I did see that there was value to doing it right. And then you moved into doing something completely different. Yeah. One of your projects. Yeah. You have several projects going on now. It took the lessons of what I didn't want to have happen again. And I tried to figure a way around what those things were. So I, I'm, I'm, the project I'm referring to is a thing called The Musicianer. It's a short film and it features a musician that I absolutely admire and like as a person. He's a really great guy. His name is Petunia and he's from British Columbia, the other Vancouver. He and I had connected at the end of Winding Stream and he actually was one of the musicians who did live music for some of the screenings, including one in Vancouver, BC. And uh, we hit it off and I really liked his vibe and I just liked, I loved his voice and the music he played. And I thought, geez, it'd be cool to work on a project with him. And he really wanted to work on a project with me. And I thought, well, let's, I don't want to do a documentary about him. And I really don't want to get bogged down in like doing something that's like a biopic where I have to pay for somebody else's musical rights. And, and, and he's a great songwriter and we should work with his material. And so we worked it out that I built fictional, crazy narrative about a hillbilly singer from the 1920s who inadvertently achieves immortality and uh, is now alive in 2019 at the time. He's stuck in time. And he he's this guy from the 20s who still yodels and plays all this crazy music. And now he's trendy because hipsters like early Americana music. So I thought that would be funny and he thought it'd be funny. And so we we went about doing it. And I said, I don't I don't want to raise a lot of money. I don't want to pay for music rights. If I'm going to pay somebody, I want to pay a musician directly. I don't want to pay a suit at Sony Records. I want to pay a live person who wrote the song, <laughs> um, which is really like my bottom line. I don't mind paying people. I just want to make sure the money gets to the person who actually right. did the work. <laughs> so it was a great collaboration. I found a great team of people that do narrative work. I've worked a lot with documentary filmmakers but it's a whole different discipline in the narrative world. And I dabbled in that before, but this was like a return to something I hadn't done in a long time. And Petunia and I both said, you know, if you're okay with me sticking my neck out here, I'm okay with you sticking your neck out. You know, so we we both made this pact that we were going to take a risk on each other, essentially. I'm pleased that it did really well in festivals. We're going to actually now try to develop it into a feature. The whole crew is still on board. Everybody really, it was a great vibe. Everybody loved working on it, which is a really wonderful feeling. And um, yeah, so there's that project that that I'm very excited about. And I'm also working on a documentary now about another friend of mine who actually is also a musician, although that's not the real thrust of the film. He's an artist named David Greenberger, who I, I know, used to know back in Boston when we were in our 20s. And in the early days of just getting out of college, David had been in art school and um, didn't have immediate job prospects, as you might imagine coming right out of art school. And he looked around and got a job at a nursing home in Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts, where I was born. And uh, he was the activities director and he, you know, was not your typical activities director. It wasn't bingo and, it, you know, it wasn't uh, crafts 
day, he decided he was going to interview people and make a little zine out of it at a time before we knew the word zine. He would interview these guys, but he wouldn't. And it was all men at this nursing home. It was a kind of mom and pop nursing home. And he would interview them and he would ask them questions like, you know, he wouldn't ask where were you during the depression or what branch of the military did you serve in? He would ask things like, how close can you get to a penguin? Or <laughs> oh, <laughs> which do you prefer, coffee or meat? Um, <laughs> or what is embarrassment? And, and he would ask these questions and the guys, some, you know, in varying stages of cognition as we get in life, would go, what? Penguin? That's the craziest thing I ever heard. But you know, I really like penguins. And then he, they would be off and he would get these incredible nuggets from people about the weirdest things. And then he would literally, you know, type these out, cut and paste them and put them in this little zine that he illustrated. And at, at some point he got like one of the guys to write poetry and another guy to review records. And another guy did what we would now call outsider artwork with crazy lettering. And, and it became like this cult classic of a zine that all kinds of people ended up subscribing to, including the guys in R.E.M., George Carlin, Penn and Teller, like all these people all over the world found out about this thing and were like, we want more of that. Um, so David has been doing this work for 40 years now. Wow. The joke, of course, is that now David and I are seniors. So that's shocking. So it's a, the film is really tricky because it's got, got all these rich, weird layers and incredible visuals. And um, we have footage of the guys back in the day. And now he works with a whole different group of, you know, he works with people all over the country interviewing people. But of course, when we, I sit with him and film him talking to people, I realize that the people we're interviewing are our peers oh. and not old guys. Right. <laughs> so it's a it's a fabulous journey for like to be with my friend David, who I really love and and see his work up close and show what how he illuminates the human spirit by asking these crazy questions. He also takes this material and does live performances of it with a band, which is where the music part comes back in. So I'm trying to make this piece that's about aging. It's about art. And it's about conversation and how we can be in dialogue with each other, no matter where we are in life. It's big. Um, and it's, it's a lot un- of layers. It's there. unwieldy. Yeah, it's pretty unwieldy. And some days I talked, like I talked to him the other day, I'm like, yeah, okay, next steps. Because it's really hard to figure out. But it's it's fun. And I, I hope to, um, I started to talk to some of the more famous fans that he has. And, and people to a person just love him and are really excited about talking about him. So I'm really psyched to get like people like Michael Stipe in it and we want to go to Vegas and interview Penn and & Teller and so it'll be fun. Edith Wharton famously said, there are two ways of spreading the light, to be the light or the mirror that reflects it. We here at Trust Tree are committed to shining a light on women's stories, the stories that have so often gone untold. We want to help you to be your brightest self and reflect that light and warmth out to the world. We've created beautiful custom candles with unique scents to remind us to always move toward the light. Our current scents are Inspire, a relaxing blend of eucalyptus and spearmint that transports you to your favorite spa, and Delight, a subtle coconut and citrus scent reminding you of the joy of a tropical vacation. 
Candles are available through our website, trusttreegroup.com, or by sending us an email at contact at trusttreegroup.com or at the Vanwares kiosk found in Divine Consign on Main Street in Vancouver, Washington. These custom scents are only for a limited run and all proceeds go to support our efforts to share the stories of phenomenal women. So tell us about the Emmy Award winning project. So I I have to tell you that I absolutely love your sense of humor and the ability to be somewhat vulnerable. I saw lots of social media around. Am I going to be Susan Lucci again this year? So tell us a little bit about the non-Susan Lucci moment where you, you received the Emmy. It was big. Awards are nice. They're not the be all and end all, but I'd be lying if I said I didn't want to win an Emmy. And I have been involved in two national Emmy nominated projects and I've been nominated another I think it was seven other times on my own for films I did with Oregon Public Broadcasting. And, you know, just didn't happen. As the saying goes, it's still an honor to be nominated, but, you know, didn't happen. And Emmy nominated sounds pretty good in the bio, so I'm good with that. But this year, one more time, I had worked on uh, and produced and directed a, a piece for the series Oregon Experience at OPB on Fort Vancouver, which was really cool because, of course, I do love history and I do love Vancouver and I love the fort. And I was like, well, this is kind of fun. And so I spent a good part of a year working on the film and got a great help from the Park Service folks. And the reenactors there were really great, you know, because a, a historic film of that period, there are no photos or very few photos. So it's really about uh, historic imagery, uh, a lot of which doesn't exist. So you have, you need reenactments. So, you know, we did, we worked hard on it and I had a really great crew from OPB and, but it was a hard film to make because it was telling a big story about the trading post, the multicultural community that had grown up around Fort Vancouver. And I really wanted to make sure I, I told it right. And I did justice to all the different people who lived there at some point, you know, for those who don't know, not only did they have folks from the British Isles, but, you know, the Scots and Irish in, in England, but they also had people from all over from various tribes, not just in the Northwest, but they had Iroquois people coming here. It, it was a huge trading post. And they also had Hawaiian people living here. And they, you know, it was a, just a, it's just seemed so unlikely. People don't understand just who was around that fort. So anyway, got to make the film. It's a great project to finally complete. I was proud to show it. I'm proud because it's my hometown now. And then it got nominated for an Emmy. And I'm like, okay, well, here's the, here we go again. And I almost didn't go because I thought, yeah, you know, one more time. And actually, I went with my friend Billy Best. My husband, Andy, was out of town. And we went up to Seattle where the awards were. And it won. And I was just dumbfounded because I, I really had thought, well, we'll drink a bunch of wine and we'll have dinner and we'll stay overnight in Seattle. It'll be fun. It was really gratifying. And it was nice because I was on stage when the producer gets the award. Now they also give awards to the crew. And so my sound man, uh, Bill Ward, was with me. And I've worked with Bill for almost 40 years. And he is the guy, the sound guy is often the guy that's off on the side no one's paying any attention to until something goes wrong. <laughs> um, and he's always been the quiet guy. But he is also the guy that when I 
finish an interview and I turn to the crew and say, am I forgetting anything? Is there anything you guys want to ask? Bill will say, oh, you know, you didn't ask blah, blah, blah. And I'll be like, damn you, Bill, you're right. I didn't ask blah, blah, blah. So he, he's like my, I call him my co-producer. So he and I got up on stage together that night to get the award. And it was really fun. And he'd won before. So he, he knew the drill. Oh, now we go off stage and we get our picture taken. I'm like, oh, okay, Bill, thanks. <laughs> so <laughs> he knew all about it, which is Bill's role. <laughs> so where you're at in your career now, things have changed in your industry remarkably quickly. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and moving forward, are you going to just keep making films till you? Mm-hmm. Till I drop? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the plan. Yeah, Yeah, no, you know, it's not that it's any easier now. It's not. But I just realized that I do have a better appreciation for the actual joy of doing the thing. And it's partly because I just feel very confident about doing what I do. I know how to do it. I've done it for 40 years. So I know, okay, what's the worst that happens? Oh, yeah, the camera malfunctioned or I forgot to ask a question or the subject's not nearly as cooperative as we thought or, you know, stuff happens. Uh, None of that rattles me anymore. So the joy of just being with people and seeing what happens and, you know, we'll make something out of it. It'll it'll work. We'll make something work. You know, may not all be Emmy nominated (laughs) or award winning, but we'll make something work. And that frees me up to just really enjoy it. I've just been having the best time of my life now with what I do. I was out, you know, Wednesday at Council Crest in Portland, seriously pretending to be Sergio Leone, directing this rock and roll band. And we did a fake shootout scene, like at the end of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And it was hilarious and fun. And people were standing around like, what the hell are they doing? And, and we were all just laughing our asses off and it was a beautiful sunny day up and you know you could see all the volcanoes and I was like this is great you know I'm getting paid to do this this is great for as long as I can I want to keep doing it I mean I'm sure there will be things up ahead that will slow me down but the actual act of doing it is like there's no no better fun and I have tons of ideas I have a list of things I still want to do you have new projects that I think oh I could develop that this year let's do that. And so all of that is just very exciting. And I figure I'll do it till I drop. I, I keep thinking of like my idol as someone like Agnes Varda, who, you know, was making Oscar nominated films and in, well into her 80s and was clearly having fun too and working with younger and younger collaborators, you know, just by definition. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's good. Let's do that. <laughs> so advice to your younger self. What would you tell yourself um, as you were just getting started? What advice would you share? It's much clearer to me now that things that either I thought were shortcomings or problematic pieces of how I operated, because it seemed that's what I was getting from other people when I was learning my craft, What comes to mind is something like, oh, you're not very aggressive. You're not very outspoken. You're not asking this set of questions. You're asking these questions. All of those things when I was younger, I thought were my failings. 
now I look at them and go, oh no, that's what actually is makes what I do different. Those are my superpowers. And I didn't know that when I was, you know, 26. And now it's like, oh, yeah, I, I do. I know how to listen. I ask a question, I know how to listen to it. And I know what, where to take it once I, someone gives me an answer. And I don't have to subscribe to a list of, you know, I, I see people all the time. Question number one, question number two. And they're not listening. They're just ticking off questions. And I've always had that power. And I thought it was me not being, you know, doing it the right way. So I would tell myself, don't buy that. Do the thing that feels organic to you and, and you know, develop your skill set for sure. But that's part of your toolbox. And I, that took me a long time to figure out. So Beth, just like you have had Bill as uh, your additional producer, uh, our Bill is Chris. And Chris is a great producer and helps to keep us moving forward. And he has a, an awesome question that we want to ask you, which is you grew up in rock and roll and you've integrated film and music. What does rock and roll look like today for you? <laughs> this is very emotional. This is extremely emotional. You guys create, are killing me. We create a little vibe you, in here. You're <laughs> killing me. You're killing me. People say this a lot, and I think it's true that, you know, music saved my life, you know? I, you know, I never was in the kind of crisis that some people are talking about when they talk about that. But it's true that, like, as a teenager, I was, like, super unhappy. I just wanted to move on with my life. And you're in that weird American limbo of teen. And other parts of the world don't have teen. We have teen, and it's icky. Amen. <laughs> right? And I, I was able to push myself through it by listening to music and imagining a world outside that didn't look like my bedroom in Braintree, Massachusetts. And the freedom of rock and roll, which is, you know, often talked about, was very real to me. What's more, the, the, the world of musicians, which I kind of think of like as a, like a priesthood, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like I was really, like I want to be in that club. And to be asked to be in that club as a 25-year-old, when I wasn't, I wanted to be in, but I didn't know how to get in and be part of that was huge. And the the vibe of the club was something that I, I cherish and I cultivate in just my friendships and, and, and also how I work and film because it's kind of like a similar club. We, you know, got people with gear and things we're trying to do as a team and we're trying to tell a story somehow and all that stuff is rock and roll to me. And so that freedom and the camaraderie, like when I, when I was a kid, a lot of women say this especially, it wasn't that we wanted to date the Beatles, we wanted to be the Beatles. And I feel like I'm Beatles now. <laughs> yes, you are. Right? Yeah. I get to yeah. be yeah. the Beatles. So it's very cool. It's it's huge and obviously deeply important to me. Where can people find you on? <laughs> Where can they find me? Uh, you well, I'm I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter, though I'm not much of a Twitter person. My um, website is bethharrington.com. All one word. There are two H's in there. Be careful. I also have um, websites for my films. So themusicianer.com. TheWindingStream.com, 
I'm working on something that's not fully developed yet called Four Mothers. So there's a foremothersfilm.com that's about early four rock mothers, and roll. F-O-R-E. F-O-R-E-M-O-T-H-E-R-S. Not the number four. No. Four mothers as in early women in rock and roll. Mm-hmm. So I'm starting to develop that. Thank you for listening. Please tune in to our upcoming episodes as we talk with more of our anthology writers and reflect on what we've learned. You can check us out at trusttreegroup.com. All our links are there. We'd love it if you'd subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast with your friends, sign up for our newsletter, follow us on social media, look for our candles in our online shop or at the Van Wares kiosk in Divine Consign on Main Street. I'm Lisa. I'm Elizabeth. And together we are Trust Tree.